Good morning again. Today we are starting our new fall series called Eating with Jesus. What we're going to be doing is we're going to be going through the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to be looking at every time Jesus eats with someone. Now, this is not because I was hungry when I came up with the next sermon series, okay? Uh, this is a legitimate way to read the Gospel of Luke because eating, it has been argued by some scholars, is the unifying theme of the Gospel of Luke. When, if you were with us during the summer, we talked about each of the things that we do during our worship service, and we talked about communion, and uh, I, for me, that was a really, I learned a lot in that study, and I really enjoyed the practice that we did. If you weren't here, we actually sat around tables, and we, we made it a bit more of a meal, and um, one of the things that came up as I was studying for that is the importance of meals in the Gospel of Luke, and so we're going to be doing this study, and so the question is, why, why talk about eating? Why, why are we talking about eating? Why did Luke care so much about eating? And there's three reasons. Number one, meals play an essential role in human relationships. Eating is an essential part of so many things that we do. What is the number one thing that you do uh, if you suggest that you want to spend time with someone? What do you suggest that you do? Let's go to lunch. Let's get dinner. Let's get coffee and donuts or bagels or something, right? Like we typically eat. What do you do if you want to ask someone out on a date? Hey, let's go get dinner. You know, what do we do after we get married? We have a banquet. What do we do after a funeral? We have a meal or refreshments. What, we we in, involve food in so much of what we do as we build relationships. And, and there is something very, uh, very intimate about eating together. If you remember in school, when were the cliques in your school the most pronounced? in the cafeteria, in who you chose to spend that time eating and talking with. And that principle was especially powerful during the New Testament. And, and in previous uh, ages of humanity, eating took on a very powerful role. It sent a very powerful signal. It was an essential part of uh, hospitality. It was what it meant to be a good person uh, in many ways socially, was being willing to have people over for meals. Food is an essential part of how we build human relationships, and it always has been. It's also an essential part of church fellowship. And I don't just mean potlucks, but that's also not a joke. Potlucks are really important in what it means to be a church. Potlucks and getting together for food and things like that, those can be really powerful experiences. Some of my best memories of being in the church are from potlucks. But also, I would argue that the the highest moment, the most important moment in our gathering each week is the meal that we eat together. If we gather to do one thing each Sunday, if you have to narrow it down to one thing, we gather to eat at the Lord's Supper. So it's a, eating together is an essential part of our church fellowship. But here's the interesting thing that I found as I was studying for the Sermon on Communion, is that the book I was reading that said, you know, he was arguing that we, always, we talk about the Last Supper whenever we do communion. But actually, especially in Luke, communion doesn't just point back towards the Last Supper. Think about it. Why do we call it the Last Supper? Because there were suppers before that. Right? And actually, Jesus spent his entire ministry preparing his disciples and, and, and involving them in table fellowship. The Last Supper was simply... One of those instances. In fact, it wasn't even the last one. There's two more in the Gospel of Luke after the Last Supper. 
So what we find is in the Gospel of Luke that um, eating meals played an essential role in Jesus's ministry. In fact, it was his, who he ate with more than what he preached that was controversial. And so eating is actually, can be a, and all that eating signifies can be a really important way for us to understand who Jesus is and what he did and what he's doing now through us and what we do as a community, what it means to follow Jesus can in very much, uh, can, can very much be described in how we eat and who we eat with. So what we're going to do is each week we are going to look at a different instance when Jesus ate with people in his ministry in the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to look at what that teaches us about how Jesus did his ministry and how that shapes the way we carry on his ministry in the church. So today we're going to start with Luke chapter 5. I'm going to read the whole story, and then we're just going to go through and I'm going to pull out some things, some significant points that come from this story that we should learn. Uh, And we'll be in chapter 5, starting in verse 27. This is early in Jesus' ministry in Luke. Jesus went out and proclaimed that he had come to bring good news to the poor, and then he goes out and he starts, uh, he's preaching, but he's also calling people to follow him. He's called Peter and and the other fishermen to follow him. He heals a paralyzed man. He heals a leper, and there's all this this controversy swirling around him, all this talk swirling around him, this, his movement is catching fire, and he's a very, he's a, he's a very um, controversial, kind of cutting-edge personality in the region, and everybody's wanting to find out who he is and what he stands for, especially the Pharisees. So, uh, this is right after he heals a paralyzed man. It says, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting in his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins, and no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new. For they say, the old is better. Word of the Lord. So this is a, if, if you know the Bible very well, this is a well-known story. This is one that we talk about a lot. Jesus says something very important here about who he is and what his ministry is meant to be. But there is more going on in this story than I think we sometimes unpack, uh, partly because I think we stop reading at the wrong point. 
So we're going to go through, we're going to look at this story, and we're going to highlight some of the things that this story teaches us about who Jesus was and how he ate at his table and who he is today through what we do in his name. The first theme that comes out very clearly in this story is that Jesus wanted to be close to sinners. This is the clearest thing that comes out of this story. Jesus wanted to be close to sinners. And you can see this jump out in three points at least. Number one is how the story starts. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting in his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Now, if you haven't heard a sermon about a tax collector before, then you may not know the context for this. If you have, you've probably heard this a million times. Tax collectors were not popular. Taxes are never popular, but in this case, it was especially bad because Levi would have been working for Herod, who was a lackey for the Romans. So he was considered a collaborator with the oppressors of the Jews. His job would have involved handling money that was ritually unclean, so he was breaking the law of Moses, and his profits would have directly been related to how much he could cheat the people out of. And so he was predatory in, the, in his profession. He cheated people out of money, he broke the law of Moses, and he helped the oppressors. They were not popular with anybody. Everybody could find a reason to hate a tax collector except other tax collectors and other people who were just as hated as tax collectors. So it's surprising that Jesus, as he's going, sees Levi, goes to Levi, and says to him, follow me. Notice that that's the emphasis for Jesus. It's being the two of them being close to each other. He goes to Levi, and he says, hey, come with me. So Jesus, right off the bat, he shows that he wants to be close to this particular sinner. But then what is the first thing that Levi does once he has decided to follow Jesus? In the Greek, Greek has more tenses and it's more complex so you, they can communicate more than we can in English. English is a weird language. But it actually, the way it's phrased, it shows that the next thing that Luke does is what he meant by following Jesus. It's like it's a continuous, the, the verb points to the next verse. So what does Levi do? What's the first thing he does in following Jesus? Levi held a banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. Basically, Levi throws a party for every undesirable person in town. They probably all knew each other because they, had to, they, they, were, they were the only people who would be friends with each other. Right? It's kind of like a leper colony within the city because the, the only other tax collectors will be friends with tax collectors, right? So he gets all of them together and throws a party with Jesus as the guest of honor. And what does Jesus do? He goes. Without hesitation. Luke, Luke makes no, doesn't discuss Jesus wrestling with whether or not he's going to do it or debating it or having a team meeting with his disciples to decide whether he should go. He goes. And then when the Pharisees come and question that decision, Jesus says, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus says, I'm a doctor. And I came here because I wanted to be with the sick. 
How often do we feel like our sin, we use this terminology all along, I've drifted from God. I'm not close to God right now. I have done these things, I've done the wrong things, I haven't been doing the right things, and so I'm far away from God. And it is true that there is some sense in which our sin alienates us from God. It breaks down that relationship. But that's not because God is holding us at an arm's length, saying, you're sinning too much for me to be close to you. What this passage tells us is that the the more we drift, if anything, the more we drift, the more Jesus wants to be close to us. Because the more we need that closeness. And so if you are in a place where you feel like you're far from God, that means that the relationship is damaged. Have you ever, like, if you've been in a friendship or a marriage where it's, the relationship is breaking down and you're in the same room but you feel miles apart? If you experience that, that might be a good analogy because we feel that distance as we're not on the same page with God, but Jesus is right there. He wants to be with sinners. He came to be with sinners. He came to join us in the muck and the mire, to come to our houses to be with our friends, to be in the midst of our brokenness. Now, it's important for us to make a balance here. And here's the balance. Jesus wants to be with sinners. And sometimes, just like the Pharisees, we neglect that. We can also misunderstand Jesus wanting to be with sinners if we think that he wants to leave them there. Because notice what he says. He came to call sinners to repentance. So, Jesus' goal was to bring them to repentance. Jesus does want to create change in us. He does want to transform us. Sorry, I just... There, all right. It's bugging me. He wanted to bring them to repentance. So he, he reaches us where we are, but he does not intend to leave us where we are. And sometimes in our desire, and and it is an understandable thing for us to struggle with, and it's a balance that I don't think we ever achieve perfectly, that we need to be, that we want to be with those who need Jesus, and and we want to be with Jesus, but we also want to become who Jesus calls us to be. But what this story is about is about how that change actually happens. Because I think one of the problems that we have is we misunderstand how Jesus creates that change. How Jesus creates that repentance. Because Jesus says he's a doctor. He came to heal the he came for sinners, right? He came for the sick. But that's only a partial answer. That tells us why Jesus eats with sinners. But How many of you have ever gotten a prescription from your doctor that involved having dinner with your doctor? Anybody? Any doctor say, all right, uh, here's what's wrong with you. We need to go out and get Chick-fil-A. Or I'm coming to your house for a banquet. Anybody? See, that's the question that still needs to be answered. Now we know why Jesus ate with sinners, but why did Jesus eat with sinners? That's why we have to keep reading the story, because that's the next thing that the Pharisees ask about. Um, Because notice when Jesus, I'll just give you the line. Jesus didn't offer them a diagnosis or a prescription. He offered them himself. See, here's the thing. When we talk about 
do, what we expect from doctors is we expect doctors to say, to give us a look over and say, here's what's wrong with you. Here's what you need to do to treat it. Right? That's what we expect. That's what we want from a doctor. But notice what happens when Jesus goes to Levi. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. And Jesus said to him, here's all the things that are wrong with collecting taxes for Herod. Here is everything that is wrong with your lifestyle. Here is everything, every doctrine that you've got wrong about who God is and what God wants from you. And here's, here's the doctrinal statement I need you to sign on to so you can follow me. No. Jesus went up to Levi and said, here's the penance that I need you to do in order to cure you of your sin and then you can follow me. Now here's the thing. Levi probably had had a lot of people come up to him and diagnose exactly what was wrong with him. That was probably not an uncommon experience. Probably every person that he needled for money told him exactly what was wrong with him. Jesus didn't come in and lead with, here's what's wrong with you. He didn't come in with, here's the ways you can treat your sin. He came in and led with, follow me. We don't get a lot of what's going on in Levi's head in this story. We don't know if he's heard Jesus preach before. We don't know if, he's, if there's any connection. He might have known Jesus well. He might have never seen the man in his life. So apparently that information is not important for us to understand what's happening in this story. Because all we really know is what Jesus said to him. And that's what was different about Jesus. Levi responded to Jesus because of who was calling him. He responded because it was Jesus. This is also how Jesus answers the Pharisees' second question, because they, they ask him, uh, you know, he says that he's been, um, he came as a doctor for the sick. He came to call sinners to repentance. Here's the interesting thing. You know who else called sinners to repentance? Pharisees. Pharisees were a missionary movement. We don't talk about that as much because that's not, um, Judaism has changed a lot. But during that time, the Pharisees were a missionary movement. They worked very hard to bring people to Judaism, to call Jews back to Judaism, and to convert Gentiles to Judaism. Jesus talks about them traveling over great distances to win a convert, but they're converting them to the wrong thing. So the Pharisees were in the business of calling people to repentance. John the Baptist did the same thing. But there was a difference in how John the Baptist and the Pharisees did things and the way Jesus did things. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Basically what they're saying is, yeah, you, you're calling the, the sinners to repentance. This doesn't look like repentance. This doesn't look like how sinners should react when they've acknowledged how wrong they've been. Where's the fasting? Where's the mourning? Where's the sackcloth and ashes? Where's the beating your breast? Where's all these things to show that you recognize how terrible... Like, we, we really make people work for it when they repent. Even John the Baptist is doing it. Because ultimately what they believe... Uh, what the Pharisees were looking for is they believed that when Israel, when the, enough Jews finally followed the law properly, the Messiah would come and he would sort them out into the righteous who kept the law and the sinners who didn't. And he would, the, the righteous would get to come into the kingdom and the sinners would not. 
And so it was really important to follow the law and to make it clear that you were one of those who were following the law. You weren't one of the unrighteous. So they really wanted everybody to follow the law so that the Messiah would come back. And they really, and so what, when you converted, you acknowledged, oh, I've been one of the sinners. I've been one of the people keeping the Messiah from coming back. So I'm going to fast, and I'm going to mourn, and I'm going to show God how sorry I am so that hopefully he will send the Messiah. That's the mentality they're expecting. And instead, Jesus says, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. In those days, they will fast. What's the difference between Jesus' followers and the followers of the Pharisees and John the Baptist? It's who they're with. The fact that they're with the bridegroom. Jesus is saying that the difference is himself, his presence. Why would they be weeping and mourning, waiting for the Messiah to come? I'm right here. I've already come. I didn't come because all the sinners had repented. I came to bring them to repentance. And if they're coming to repentance, then they're with me, and, and this is the goal. There's no reason to weep and gnash and wait and try and, you know, convince God with your weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth that the Messiah should come. I am here. So the difference with Jesus is the fact that he is present. The answer for Jesus was his, himself. That's what he had to offer. Jesus didn't have this profound new moral teaching that was different from what they received in, under Moses. Jesus said he fulfilled what Moses said. He didn't have some profound new self-help regimen that would help you get out of your sinful practices. He didn't have, you know, the five-step program. Jesus ate with sinners because eating with him was the cure. Because being in the presence of God, being in Jesus' presence, is what Jesus has to offer us. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the man in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. It's this connection with Jesus that makes the difference. It's knowing Jesus, spending time with Jesus that transforms us, that makes the difference. It doesn't mean that we don't need to have our, identify our sins, that we don't need to repent, that we don't need to, uh, we don't need to be changed as people. What it means is that the only way that will success, successfully happen is if we know Jesus. Here's the amazing thing that happens when Jesus is around. We, we think it's so important for us to diagnose everyone's sins, but one of the interesting that happen, things that happens when you really get to know Jesus, it's not the only way, but one of the interesting things that happens is sinners start to diagnose themselves. Earlier in chapter 5 of Luke, Jesus encounters Peter and James and John, and they have this miraculous catch of fish that opens Peter's eyes to who Jesus is, and how does he react? When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. In the presence of Jesus, he sees himself for who he is. Now, I'm not saying that everybody just magically diagnoses themselves and we don't need to, tell, we don't need to help people 
uh, battle their sin and identify the things that need to be changed. What I'm saying is that it's only really as we get to know Jesus that we have the eyes that can truly see that. And Jesus is the one who changes our hearts to give us the eyes to see what's wrong with us, to see what needs to be changed, to see who God is and who God calls us to be. If we lead with here's all the things you need to change without introducing them to Jesus who makes it possible for them to change, it's not going to work because it's Jesus, it's knowing Jesus that makes the difference. Not only because Jesus helps us to see, but also Jesus changes us. In the story right before the one that we read, Jesus has this encounter where he's in a, in a uh, crowded house and a paralyzed man is brought up to the roof by his friends. They tear open the roof and they lower him down. And Jesus, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to them, friend, your sins are forgiven. Jesus can forgive sins by his presence, by being there, by being with Jesus, this man had his sins forgiven. But everybody complained, oh, Jesus, you can't forgive sins. That's, that's not your thing. You don't have the authority to do that. So Jesus says, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. In the presence of Jesus, there is forgiveness and there is healing. Things that are not possible from just listing diagnoses and listing prescriptions. So Jesus made a habit of eating with people because it was that intimacy with him that actually changed people. It was what made this new age different. It's what made this the kingdom of God was that it was possible for people to be in the presence of God, to be in fellowship with him and to be transformed by their time with him. And they would be transformed by him. This is what Jesus means by those puzzling parables at the end of the story. Jesus warned them that eating with him would change everything. That as you spend time with Jesus, it's not for the faint of heart, because it will change everything. And this is what caused the Pharisees to balk. This is what made them hesitate, because it would, make, it would change everything. This is what Jesus means when he says, no one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine, skin, new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for they say the old is better. These parables are about the fact that you can't, and there are instances where you can't really mix the old and the new. That when, some, when you change something, you have to change everything. It does no good to, make, to fix your old coat with pieces of a completely different new coat. And if you put new wine into, new, into old wineskins, it'll break. They just don't mix. And this tells us two things. It tells us what, how Jesus' presence changes sinners, and it tells us what Jesus is expecting of the Pharisees. First of all, being with Jesus changes us because you can't just weld Jesus onto your normal life. Jesus doesn't fit with the way you are doing things when you meet him. The only way that you can continue living the way you were when you met Jesus is to kind of step away. 
to resist the transformation that Jesus is making in your life, to turn, to turn your time with Jesus into something ceremonial, into something distant, into something that's not really reaching you, to avoid your Bible, to avoid prayer, to avoid connecting with God. But if you're truly spending time with Jesus, if you're truly seeking him, seeking his word, seeking his will for you, if you're truly spending time with him and his people, it will change you. It has to, because the, the teachings of Jesus, the pattern of Jesus, the character of Jesus does not fit into your old life. It does not fit into your old values. It does not fit into your old agendas, your old ethics. And so if you aren't with Jesus yet and you're considering it, let me tell you, Jesus wants to be close to you. But being close to him will change everything. Not in an instant, but ultimately it changes everything everything. Now, for those of us who have signed on to that and find ourselves more in the position of the Pharisees, here's what that means. It's, it's easy for us to accept the transformation of Jesus for ourselves, but deny it to other people in the way we talk to them. It's easy for us to accept a physician who welcomes us before we have fixed ourselves and then turn around and expect other people to fix themselves before we will be in fellowship with them. It's easy for us to accept the fact that Jesus wants to eat with me, a sinner, and then turn around and say, wait, why does he want to eat with them? The Pharisees were committed to their way of dealing with sin, their way of diagnosing and prescribing. You need to have all of these things figured out before you can be part of the fellowship, before you can be accepted. And we have this amnesia about all the things that we had wrong when, we, when God saved us, and all the things that we have wrong right now. So what Jesus is telling the Pharisees is the old ways don't work. This is why the law doesn't work anymore. Because Jesus is here. Why would you go back to the old falling apart coat? Worse, why would you tear a piece out of the new coat and damage the new coat, damage your understanding of the true gospel and the true uh, freedom in Jesus? so that you can hold on to that tattered old coat. It, the one confusing thing about the parables is that the significance of old and new switches. In the wine, old is better. So the gospel is the old wine in the second parable. And that's why he says, when you taste the old wine, you don't want to go back to the new stuff. When you've tasted the really nice bottle stuff, you don't want it in a box anymore. Like, so when you... Sorry. <laughs> When you've experienced the gospel, when you've experienced the actual transformation that Jesus can make, why would you go back to that old broken system where all you have to offer is a list of what everybody is doing wrong and a list of things they can do to just kind of stop doing it as much, but not really be changed? Why would we settle for the old anymore? So as we realize that the power of the gospel is in the table fellowship of Jesus, the opportunity that we have to spend time with Jesus, that needs to transform, that will transform the way we live our lives, but it also needs to transform the way we invite people in to participate in that same thing. Because we so often join the new covenant and invite people to the old one. We join the gospel and we invite people to the law. 
right? We are saved by grace, and then we tell everybody else, here's the things you got to do. I need to start by telling you everything I think you're doing wrong in your life. And once you've admitted those, then, then let's sit down and talk and have a meal together. And that's simply not how Jesus did it. So as we land this plane, here's what I want you to take away from this first meal uh, that Jesus has in the Gospel of Luke. First of all, the antidote to sin is not doctrine or penance. It's eating with Jesus. You don't fix people by getting their doctrine right. You don't fix people by getting them to do a certain amount of things to pay for the sins they've already committed. We are fixed by knowing Jesus. Now, as Jesus fixes us, that does mean that we learn the truth, and we walk in the truth, and we are changed and transformed. But how many of you know, don't actually raise your hand, but how many of you know someone who clearly knows the Bible, clearly also doesn't know Jesus very well? Right? Have we all met somebody who you, they know the Bible like the back of their hand, but seem like they've never met Jesus? I know because I've been that person. I was that person. And I'm on a journey to not being that person anymore who could win Bible drills but couldn't show compassion to people who'd never been in church before. I have been that person. It is important for us to learn and be transformed by the truth, but that can only happen if we know and experience Jesus. In fact, in our evangelism class, we talked today about uh, this interesting fact, sociologists for a long time thought that what drew people to a religion was doctrine. And so they would study the doctrines of a particular religion and say, oh, this doctrine would appeal to this kind of person, so those kinds of people must be the ones who join that religion. And then this guy named Rodney Stark, he did a study with a, a peer, he and another sociologist studied the very first group of Moonies. You remember the Moonies uh, from the Unification Church in South Korea? The very first American group and what they found was that all these people that joined the group, uh, once they joined, they said, oh man, the teachings, just from the moment I heard it, I was transformed, I knew it was the truth. But the problem was those same sociologists had interviewed those same people before they actually committed, and, and they, when they were on the edges of the community, and the people said, yeah, all this stuff they believe is super weird. But they're nice, they're nice people, so I'll stick around. Because what they've learned is that people are drawn to relationship more than doctrine. The most important factor in how people choose the religious community they're going to join is relationship, not doctrine. Doctrine comes second. Which would make sense for us because if the gospel is primarily knowing Jesus, that means that God wired us for that. Right? He wired us to seek out a relationship with Jesus first. And so the antidote, the thing that changes people's lives and makes it possible for them to begin winning the battle against sin is Jesus, not doctrine or penance. Secondly, I want you to remember that if you truly spend time with Jesus, you can never be the same again. And if nothing is changing in you, then you've probably moved down the table away from Jesus. You might have moved to another table in the restaurant, but you're not really engaging with Jesus. Maybe you're on your phone while he's talking to you, you know, that kind of thing. But being with Jesus needs to transform us. That's what it's supposed to do. Also, and we see this from Levi, eating with Jesus should give us a heart to share Jesus. 
The first thing Levi did to follow Jesus was get together all of his tax collector friends so that he, they could hear from Jesus. The very first thing that Levi thought to do, I found the Messiah, I want all of my tax collector friends to meet him. As we're transformed to have the heart of Jesus, we should want to share him because Jesus wants to meet them. Jesus wants to be introduced to all of your friends. And here's, here's the sticking point there. Here's, here's where I'm going to challenge you. The only way to share Jesus with sinners is to eat with them ourselves. Have you ever tried setting up a friend with another friend on a blind date and had a really hard time describing the person? It's really hard to introduce people without them meeting. The only way you're going to connect people with Jesus is by spending time with them yourself. And here's a really hard thing for Christians. Think about this. What percentage of your friends are also Christians? Yeah. Now, maybe you have opportunities to meet with people who don't know Jesus. And then maybe the challenge for you is to actually take advantage of them and find ways to share Jesus and bring Jesus into those relationships. Maybe you don't. I'll tell you, I'm a pastor. Everybody in my workplace knows Jesus. Right? Like, everybody in my office. Like I, I, now, I mean, we, I interact with people, but in terms of my coworkers, not a ripe mission field. So if I am going to have, you know, do, share Jesus with people, I'm going to need to seek out relationships. I'm going to need to make friends with the people in my neighborhood. Right? I'm going to have to find opportunities to get to know people outside of this church. Because my, my most, one of the things we also talked about in the evangelism class is the fact that people will find you more convincing than me. They will care more about what you have to say than about what your pastor has to say. They don't trust me because they know that I get paid by Christians, so of course I want more Christians, is the assumption. Now, I can form relationships with people where they know me for me, but your friends care more about what you have to say than about, your, than about what your pastor has to say. So the only way we can really share Jesus is if we go out and eat with sinners ourselves. As we close, I'm going to invite the praise team to come up, and I'm going to ask you to consider what the next step is that God is calling you to take. We believe that every time the gospel is preached, there is a next step for you to take. The first thing is, if you, if you have not given your life to Jesus, he is right next to you, right now. And today is the best day for you to accept that invitation to eat with him, to be with him, and be transformed by him. And so if that's what he's putting on your heart, I encourage you to come forward during this last song, or you can pull a pastor or minister aside, someone you know in the church afterward. Uh, if you're online, you can get in touch with the church or talk to a Christian that you know or trust. Make that decision, because today is the best day. Maybe God is calling you to get more connected with the church. And if you want to find out more about baptism or about joining the church as a member, you can check that on your Connect card. If you want to go to a Connect class, Maybe God is calling you to join a small group or a service team. Or maybe God is calling you to share Jesus with someone in your life. Maybe he's put a name on your heart or a place on your heart. I encourage you to consider that, pray over that, see what God is calling you to do as we stand and sing our final song.